Okay, we're going to dive into Revelation, the book of Revelation that we are journeying our way through this year. And uh, it was good to recite the Creed this morning, by the way, wasn't it? The Apostles' Creed, one of the great, um, great statements of our faith. And I don't know, anybody raised their eyebrows when we talked about one holy Catholic apostolic church? Yeah. It was Catholic with a small c, just in case you're wondering, yeah, over a thousand years before the Reformation. So a Catholic, meaning obviously just universal church, not Roman Catholic church. Just it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful declaration of the fact that there is one church. There is one family of God. So uh, that is what is being meant there by one Catholic church, something we can affirm together, the universality of God's church. Good stuff to do. It connects us, especially as an independent evangelical church, connects us to the big family and the great tradition of our faith. So... Revelation. Now, we're in Revelation 12 this morning, and uh, while you're turning there, another um, reminder that on our website, we've got a bunch of resources that you can access. We've got a whole page of resources devoted to Revelation, uh, some recommended books there. We've got some articles and extracts there, which, which gives you a snapshot of uh, the best of biblical scholarship on the book of Revelation, uh, but also stuff that's very readable and accessible on Revelation, some, uh, some stuff there on the social background. In fact, there's one very good extract there from a book by Laurie Guy, who's a senior lecturer at Kerry Baptist College, wrote a book on Revelation. Uh, he teaches a course there, or did, on Revelation, and he gave me permission to put an extract of his book online on the social background to Revelation, which is a very good read. So that'll give you a little bit of a picture of the background that this book is coming out of. But for this morning, we are uh, past the halfway mark now, and we turn to Revelation chapter 12. So let's read it together. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and all his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and all you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of for a time, times and times and half a time, out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. I don't know whether anyone's ever thought of making Revelation into a movie. It it would make quite a good movie. I mean, I'm thinking Peter Jackson, you know? Once he finishes The Hobbit, I think this is the next project. I don't know whether he's ever read this script, but this is good stuff. I mean, it's got everything. It's got everything Peter Jackson could possibly want, doesn't it? You know, these, these, these crazy characters, uh, these epic battle scenes, uh, plots that twist and turn all over the place. I mean, this would make, it'd probably have to be a trilogy, uh, like Lord of the Rings. There's so much in there, but it would be good stuff, wouldn't it? I mean, you can imagine Weta Workshop getting their teeth sunk into this. Imagine trying to create this dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns, or trying to create this woman clothed with the sun, with the moon and the stars under her feet. That would be spectacular. One of the strange things I think that would happen if you made Revelation into a movie is that it would be over halfway through the movie before the main villain enters the scene. I mean, think about this. We're in chapter 12 now. So we've come over halfway through Revelation, but it is only now that we meet the main arch rival to God in the whole book. The main antagonist of the entire book of Revelation The main opponent and enemy of the plans and purposes of God only comes upon the scene fully in Revelation 12. And he is, of course, the dragon. He goes by many names here. Satan, the devil, the serpent, the one who leads the whole world astray, the accuser of our brothers and sisters. But the dominant image in the narrative of Revelation 12 is the dragon. He is pictured as a dragon. And this image of a dragon would have been familiar to many of John's hearers. Because in the Old Testament, the image of a dragon is used of the enemies of God, enemy nations of the people of God. Egypt is referred to as a dragon. Babylon is referred to as a dragon. These, these, these powers that oppose the people of God. Now, the thing in Revelation is that the dragon or Satan, this is not just an image of an empire that opposes God. This is not just an image now of, of, a, of a nation or a people or a system. It is now used as an image of a personal being who stands against the purposes of God, the one that we know as Satan. This is not a force. Satan's not a a power. He's not a generic sense of evil. He's not an impersonal being. He is a personal creature, a personal creation, who forms the great antagonist to the plans and the purposes and the kingdom of God. Now, you could argue, of course, that Satan's been in this book the whole way. And back in Revelation 4 and 5, we saw what a rightly ordered universe looks like with God on the throne, with all creation bowing down in submission to him, with everybody singing praise to God and the Lamb. There's no resistance in those scenes. But as the narrative progresses, we start to see that the kingdom of God is contested that the reign of God is rivaled. There is another power at work. There is another kingdom at work pushing against the forces and the kingdom of evil. And even though Satan hasn't been named up to this point as a character in the story, he has been the puppet master. He's been the one masterminding all of these rivals, all of these forces, all of these antagonists against God. And then in Revelation 12, he bursts upon the scene for himself 
and now he becomes a dominant player in the story right through to when he's destroyed uh, towards the end of the book. So you have at the beginning of this chapter a scene with Satan as the dragon, and he's red, which in Revelation is the color of warfare, bloodshed, and violence. Think of the rider on the red horse back in Revelation 6. Satan is the red dragon. He's got seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. These numbers, ten and seven, indicate completion and totality. Got to remember in Revelation, seven is not always good. It is used of God in a good sense, but it's not always good. Seven simply means fullness, totality, or perfection. So, in Satan's case, you could say that Satan is the perfection or the purity of evil. It is the purest. He is the purest form of evil there is. Satan is the embodiment, total evil, pure evil, the embodiment of everything that opposes the plans and purposes of God. That's what's being indicated by the numbers seven and ten there, completion, totality of evil. And he stands here in front of another character in the story, a woman. And she's a spectacular character. Look at her. She's, she's clothed with the sun moon under her feet, crown of 12 stars on her head. She's got this this almost celestial appearance. It indicates, I think, that she has a cosmic role in the plan of God. She has a place of cosmic importance, the moon, the stars, the sun. The identity of the woman is hinted to us by the number 12, crown of 12 stars on her head. The number 12 in Revelation is a reference to the people of God on earth, the people of God, the faithful people of God. The woman represents God's people. But the trick is, there's times in this chapter where the woman represents the people of God before Jesus, that is, faithful Israel, and there's times in this chapter later on where she represents the faithful people of God after Jesus, that is, the church. And you have to discern the context to know which is being said at which time. As the chapter opens, the woman is a representative of the faithful people of God before Jesus, that is, Israel. So you have a picture of the woman who is Israel, pregnant, crying out in pain, about to give birth. The dragon is standing in front of her, Satan, about to devour the child that she gives birth to. She gives birth to this male child, a son, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. Who do you think we're talking about here? It's got to be Jesus. This is quite clear. Jesus, the one who will rule, that's actually a quote from the Psalms, the one who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. This is Jesus, the Messiah. So, this is an image of Jesus being born, but, but the woman from whom he comes, it's not Mary. This is not just one literal woman. The woman has a corporate communal identity. She is the people of God. It's a picture of the whole nation of Israel giving birth to the Messiah. The whole nation of Israel being the womb, in a sense, from which the Messiah emerges. Israel gives birth to the Messiah, and Satan is standing right there ready to devour him. You know what you've got here in the first few verses of Revelation 12? It's the Christmas story. This is the nativity story, just not as we know it. This is the story of Jesus being born. Now, try this year with your family creating this nativity set instead. Maybe this year, leave the shepherds and the angels on the shelf and see if you can create a woman clothed with the sun and a ten-headed dragon, seven-headed dragon, rather. Yeah, that'd be interesting, wouldn't it? A really festive exercise for your family. This is the nativity story, but not as we know it. This is the nativity story from heaven's perspective. It's the nativity story from a cosmic perspective. This is not the gospel story of Matthew or Luke, but nonetheless, 
It's the story of Jesus' birth. Israel as a woman giving birth to the Messiah and Satan standing right there, ready to devour him. So place this alongside those other gospel tellings of the nativity story, and it really rounds out the picture. Now, what's interesting here, there's a lot of stuff interesting here, but when Jesus is born, look at what happens. At the end of verse 5, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. Now, what's happened here? You get this picture that Jesus is born, but then straight away he's snatched up to heaven. It's like the action jumps straight from his birth to his ascension. What about the rest of it? What about his life? What about his death? What about his resurrection? Where's all that gone? Well, this is a wonderful example of revelation using compressed time. It'll do that time and time again. John will play with our sense of time. He will compress events right down. And he has jumped here. But what he does is come back in verse 7 and tell the missing piece. Verse 7 through to verse 12 gives you the story of everything in between the birth and the ascension of Jesus. But again, it doesn't look like it, does it? Because in verse 7, what we have is a war that breaks out in heaven between the angels of God, led by Michael, and the dragon's forces. But that is exactly what happened during the historical life of Jesus. As soon as Jesus was born, a war did break out in heaven. As soon as Jesus was born, a cosmic battle erupted between the forces of God and the forces of heaven, the angelic armies, and it continued right through Jesus' earthly life. So you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have stories of Jesus healing, raising Jairus' daughter, going to Zacchaeus' house for dinner, having a barbecue breakfast with his mates on the beach. He's doing all of these human earthly things. You know what's going on in heaven? This, a cosmic battle between the forces of God, the angelic armies, and the power of the devil. Of course it is, because as the kingdom of God advances through Jesus, whose kingdom is being overthrown? Satan's. You can't have one kingdom taking ground without another kingdom losing ground. Satan's fortress is being plundered as Jesus comes preaching grace and bringing the gospel. Satan doesn't like this. He is throwing everything he's got at Jesus through his earthly life, but it's not enough. And his kingdom is overthrown and Satan is hurled to the ground. Now this makes sense of an intriguing little reference back in Luke 10. Just turn there for a second. Keep your thumb in Revelation 12. Turn back to Luke chapter 10. This makes sense of something Jesus said while he was on earth. In Luke 10, Jesus has just sent out 72 disciples into some surrounding villages to proclaim the gospel and talk about the kingdom. They come back and they're overjoyed because people have been receptive to the message and that even the demons have have fled. Uh, Verse 17 of Luke 10, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, this is Jesus, look, look at this, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now that's Jesus during his life on earth talking about seeing Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He's not talking about something that's going to happen one day in the distant future nor is he talking about something that happened in the distant past. He said, as these 72 went out and proclaimed the gospel, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That's what's happening to Satan during the ministry of Jesus. He's falling from heaven. He's losing his place in heaven, and he is being thrown down. Now, take a breath. Some of you might be wondering at this point what's going on, because there's another question this raises. How can Satan be thrown out of heaven during the ministry of Jesus when wasn't he already kicked out of heaven right at the beginning? I mean, Satan was the great angel of God. He was this angelic being at the top of the rank of all God's creatures, and he tried to usurp the authority of God, and he was kicked out of heaven for it. 
took a third of the angels with him. He was cast out of the presence of God. That's true. That happened. But as the biblical story progresses, it seems to be that even though Satan was thrown out of heaven at the beginning, he still had the ability to appear before God in the heavenly throne room, appear in the presence of God in order to accuse human beings. This is exactly what happened with Job. Read Job 1, conversation between Satan. Satan appears in the presence of God. What's he doing there? He's been kicked out of heaven. Well, it seems like in the wisdom of God, Satan still had the right to interact with God, appear before God, and specifically for the purpose of accusing human beings. That's why in Revelation 12, one of the titles, names given to Satan, is the accuser of our comrades, the accuser of our brethren. This is the role that he played. After getting kicked out of heaven, Satan became the prosecuting attorney who showed up in the heavenly courtroom with charges ready to be laid against God's people. And time and again, through the Old Testament story, Satan plays the role of accuser. He will accuse people and he will constantly try to petition God or lobby God or influence God against people. These people don't deserve your justice, your mercy. They're weak. They're faithless. They'll abandon you as soon as you strip away the hedge of protection you've got around them. They deserve punishment. They deserve condemnation. They deserve judgment. You shouldn't be so merciful. You shouldn't be so nice. This is the broken record that Satan played over and over and over again, constantly antagonizing the people of God in the presence of God until Jesus shows up. And Jesus comes preaching grace. And Jesus comes preaching forgiveness. And Jesus comes preaching reconciliation. And Jesus goes to the cross and on the cross takes upon himself all of our sin, all of our weakness, all of our struggle and stumbling and inadequacy and sinfulness, every basis of every accusation that Satan could possibly level against us, Jesus earths it in his own body on the cross. So when he dies... Jesus is the last person Satan has to accuse. He's got nobody else because Jesus has absorbed every charge against us within his own being. Satan has no one left to accuse. He destroys the Son of God. Jesus dies as the accused man, as the accursed man. But in doing so, he robs Satan of his power and authority because Satan's got no one to accuse anymore. Because sin has been forgiven transgressions have been lifted from us, what's he possibly got to accuse us of now? It doesn't mean we're perfect, but it means Jesus has absorbed our imperfections and now it's the basis of Satan's accusations against us are taken away. We're free. We're forgiven. This is good news, right? So Jesus rises again now and Satan has no power, no authority whatsoever. He is disbarred from the heavenly courtroom He is thrown out of heaven permanently. He is shut out of the presence of God permanently, never able to appear again. He is hurled down to the earth and he now awaits, we'll see it in Revelation 19, his final sentence of being thrown into the lake of fire. This is what's happened to the devil. This is what's happened to Satan. He's lost his power. He's lost his authority. His fortress has been plundered. His kingdom's been besieged and he's lost. He's lost and he knows he's lost. He has no longer any basis to bring any accusation against you or I because Jesus has taken it upon himself. The victory of the Lamb. 
that's what that's at the heart of Revelation. So there is one final scene then in this story which is a little bit troubling. The dragon's hurled down to earth, Satan's hurled down to earth, he's lost his position in heaven, no longer able to function as the accuser. So Satan is hurled to earth, and then he goes off in verse 13, when the dragon saw that he'd been hurled to the earth, who does he pursue? The woman. So Satan now goes off against the people of God, and now we're talking about after Jesus. So what's in view here is us, the church, the faithful people of God after the death and resurrection of Jesus. The picture you get is that Satan's been locked out of heaven. He can no longer stand before God and accuse us, but what he'll do is try and get in our ear anyway. He's like a prosecuting attorney who's been disbarred from the courtroom, but now he'll just hurl abuse on the streets. Now he'll just write threatening letters with no basis, but he'll antagonize and he'll intimidate and he'll bully us and he'll do all he can. He knows his own destiny is destruction, but he will do all he can for you and I against us to get in our ear and continue to plague us with accusations. He'll still do all he can to play the role of the accuser in our lives until he finally meets his destruction. He's a defeated enemy, but he's still an enemy. And much as we can see that Satan's lost his power and much as we can rejoice in Jesus' victory, we know that this reality of the devil now pursuing the people of God on earth, the dragon making war against the woman. It's very much a reality in our lives, isn't it? We feel this, and we know those voices of accusation. One of the things I struggle with, honestly, in my Christian life is uh, sometimes experiencing deeply the forgiveness of God. It sounds so silly even when you say it, but you know, when, when I really mess up, I struggle to, uh, to really know, to really believe, to really experience the forgiving power and grace of God. I mean, if it's a minor indiscretion, of course. You know. But when I really screw up, which is pretty regularly, I struggle. I just feel like I'm at the bottom of a pit. I feel useless. I feel hopeless. I struggle to believe time and time and time again that God already has forgiven me, already has lifted me up, that he's waiting to restore me. I get so condemned. And I think as I was preparing this message, so much of this is because I'm listening to the voices of the accuser. I'm listening to these accusations. You're useless. You've blown it. What right do you think you have to even try to restore communion with God after that? This is the voice of the accuser going on in my mind. You know, oh yeah, it was, it was okay the five billionth time you did that, but now it's five billion and one. You're out. You know, God's, why would God take you back? What, who do you even think you are presuming upon the grace of God? I hear these voices and sadly, I'm ashamed to say often I listen to them. Uh, and, and, and it's a voice of condemnation. It's a voice of accusation. You might have these types of voices, maybe in other areas. What are the ways in which the dragon is speaking accusations against you and going off to pursue you in your life? What are you hearing? What's the self-talk that's going on that can be traced right back to the accusations of the evil one? Maybe it's that you are useless. Maybe he's telling you you're not clever enough. You're not smart enough. You're not adequate enough. You're not lovable enough. You're not competent enough. You're not good-looking enough. You're not forgivable. What is that voice that's going on in your life? Can you trace that back to the voice of the accuser? This is not just pop psychology. This is deeply theological, because there is one who stands against us to condemn us and accuse us. 
And he knows exactly how to get into your head. He's not stupid. He's defeated, but he's not an idiot. And he knows exactly what it will take to get into your brain and to mess with your thinking and to create a broken record, an internal dialogue that leaves you feeling condemned or unloved or alone or worthless or whatever it is. He's trying it on with you, isn't he? And you know the ways in which he's doing this. If we tune into that self-talk, we hear it pretty quickly. The accuser stands ready to condemn us. And, and guys, we've got to come back to the central reality of Revelation 12, that he is defeated. He's defeated and you don't have to listen to those voices anymore. What's going on in your life is not a battle between two equal forces, as if it was God here and Satan here and they're sort of on an equal playing field. The victory's already been won. We're not fighting a battle. We're outworking a victory. We're outworking the victory of the Lamb. Jesus has plundered the house of the strong man and bound him up, and Satan is defeated. You don't have to listen to these accusations anymore. Satan has been hurled down. He's lost his authority. He's lost his authority in your life. It's like Paul says in Romans 8, who will bring a charge against those God's chosen? No one. Why? Because Jesus has died. Who can condemn? No one. Because Jesus has died, and more than that, he's risen again. We've got to listen to those voices, don't we? When the voice of the accuser comes along. Because this woman, representing the people of God, even though she's pursued by the dragon, she's taken into the wilderness where she's protected by God. Protected for the time that Satan's allowed to roam the earth. God, by his spirit, will protect you from Satan's accusations. God, by his spirit, will keep you free from the harm that Satan wants to bring against you. But it's going to happen in two ways. Look in verse 11. This is how you triumph in your life over the accusations of Satan. They triumphed over him, they referring here to the people of God, firstly by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. How do we free ourselves and gain victory over the accusations, the the accusing voices of Satan in our life? Firstly, by the blood of the Lamb. It's not your victory, it's Jesus' victory. I get quite troubled when people talk about taking on the devil. You know that talk, you know that language that sometimes rolls around in Christian suit? We're going to take on the devil. We're going to rebuke the devil. We're going to tear the devil's kingdom down. And you're, sort of, you're not going to tear anyone's kingdom down. You're not going to rebuke anyone. You've got no power over Satan. I tell you what, he's a lot more powerful than you are, but he's a lot less powerful than Jesus is. That's the point. You don't have any victory. You don't have any strength. You don't have this kind of macho, let me rebuke the devil thing going on. You just cling to the cross. That's what you do. That's your job. You immerse yourself in the blood of the Lamb. The victory is Jesus, and we're invited to participate in that victory, not stake one out for ourselves. So immerse yourself in the blood of the Lamb. When you hear those voices, when you hear those accusations coming into your mind, let your mind go to the cross. Let your mind go to Jesus and remind yourself of what he's done through his death and through his resurrection. Read Romans 8 again. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Speak that to your soul. Remind yourself of the blood of the lamb. Remind yourself of the victory of Jesus. Remind yourself that Satan has no authority. He's just a bully. He's a dirty street fighter and he'll do all he can while he's still got a little bit of time before his final destruction. We overcome the devil not on our own but by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. That word testimony is the same word as witness back in Revelation 11, maturos. Same word as witness or martyr. And we talk back in Revelation 11 about how the idea of the witness is the one who who tells and shows the good deeds 
of Jesus, who, who, who tells about the kingdom, who demonstrates the kingdom of Jesus and what Christ has done. And I would argue in Revelation 12 that we need to be witnesses, not just to other people, but also to ourselves. That we need to share our testimony with ourselves, in a sense, if you know what I mean. That as much as we witness to other people, at times, we also need to witness to ourselves, don't we? We need to remind ourselves of the grace of God in our lives. Remind ourselves of how good God has been and what God has done for us. That's the word of our testimony, is the grace that God has brought into your life, the forgiveness that he's brought into your life, the freedom that he's brought into your life from the accusations of the devil. That's the word of your testimony. So it's not enough just to try and banish the accusations of Satan. All you do then is create a big void into which all kinds of other things can flood. Like Jesus says, you can cast out one demon, you leave a big black hole, seven others are going to come in. We need to replace the accusations of Satan with something else. Don't just kick out the accusation. Bring something else in. Bring truth. Bring the story of Scripture. Replace these accusations of Satan with the affirmations of Scripture and the affirmations of God's grace in your life and what Jesus has done for you. Identify that, that, that mistruth that's going on, that lie that's there, and replace it with the truth of Scripture. One of the great affirmations of Scripture that I love to, to recite and remind myself of when I hear these accusing voices rolling around in my head is from Zephaniah 3.17. It says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that beautiful? That's my testimony. That's the word of my testimony, not just the story of how I became a Christian. That's my testimony. That's what God has done in my life. He is the mighty warrior who has saved me. He is the one who takes great delight in me, regardless of whatever other voice I hear from anyone else. He is the one who, in his great love, no longer rebukes me, but rejoices over me with singing and rejoices over you with singing. You see how much that pushes back the accusations that we hear and replaces them with fresh truth and life from God's word, that he's rejoicing over you that he's singing over you these songs of grace, songs of mercy and forgiveness, freedom, delight, and acceptance. That's the Father's song that's being sung over your life and mine. And for me, that goes a long way to silencing and replacing the negative voices of accusation that come against me every day. Find those verses, find those passages, find those scriptures that counter the accusations you're hearing and feeling from the evil one. Find those verses that speak of your value in the eyes of the Father if you're feeling worthless. Find those scriptures that speak of the absolute and unconditional love of God and how he is no longer condemning you. And use those scriptures every time you feel condemned. That's the word of your testimony. And through the blood of the Lamb and through the word of our testimony, we can and will make progress in pushing back the accusing voices and bringing to the fore in our mind and conscience the affirming voices based on the truth of the Word of God. 
So I think that if Revelation 12 ever does get made into a movie, and I'm hoping that Peter Jackson hears this message and decides to give it a shot, if it ever happens, you, you could imagine Revelation 12 actually being the prequel, couldn't you? Because when you think about it, this chapter really narrates the events leading up to the beginning of the book. It narrates these extraordinary events, the birth of Jesus, the life, death, resurrection ministry of Jesus, the birthing of the church and Satan's pursuit of the church, and we stand now in that same story. This is the prequel that we're reading, and as such, it provides such a foundational piece of the puzzle, essential truths that we need to keep coming back to and keep reminding ourselves of, that the Lamb of God has won the victory over Satan, that Satan has been cast down, His kingdom has been plundered and he has no authority and we no longer need to put up with the accusing voices that the devil tries to bring against us because they're just the bullying tactics of a defeated enemy. We can stand in the blood of the lamb, cling to the word of our testimonies, delight ourselves in the death and resurrection of Jesus and be reminded by the scriptures that the accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And now we triumph over him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. May we live in the story. May we live out of this reality. And may we rejoice and participate in the great victory that Jesus has won over the evil one. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. You are stronger than the, than the evil one. You've won the victory. You've won the great victory. But Jesus, I know that even with all of this triumphant talk, we still hear those accusations every day. And I know, Lord, there are brothers and sisters here in this room who are really bound up in those accusing voices. And they know that the the victory's been won and they know all of this, but God, we, we can still get so entangled and still just give our ears to the accusations. And I pray that Jesus, you'd set us free from that. I pray, Jesus, for any person here who is listening and and has just become enslaved to the accusations of the evil one, that Jesus, by your grace, your power, and your word, you'd set them free. Come and bring your power into their lives. Come and bring that word of freedom. Let them hear this morning, you rejoicing over them with singing. The mighty warrior who saves us. You take great delight in us, and in your love, you no longer rebuke us. Even if Satan tries to accuse us, you no longer rebuke us. And that's what matters. I pray, Lord Jesus, that your voice of grace, that your voice of truth would penetrate so much more deeply than those accusations that people are listening to. That your voice would seep into our bones, that your voice would be the one that we give an ear to. And your voice of hope would be our defining reality. Make it so in our lives, we pray, Jesus. In your name, amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shaw Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.